This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. We just kind of all looked at each other and we were like, what if we take it a step further and try to prevent this sort of thing from happening, prevent Black folks from being siloed in an office where they're the only, and make sure that they have many points of connection into this community? What if we build a community together? Welcome to the Fighting Racism podcast series, a project made in collaboration with the Footnotes podcast and the Religion News Service. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, author of How to Fight Racism. And this week, we're taking a look at fighting racism in the workplace and the environment with our guest, Abigail Oduo. We talk about the problem of environmental racism, as well as the issue of promoting workplace diversity, how these two are intertwined. And most importantly, we'll look at what someone just like you is doing today to fight racism. But first, let's get into a bit of context. Have you heard of this term, environmental racism? It's a thing. A woman named Deandris Green felt like she couldn't breathe one day. She went to the hospital, they did x-rays, and they found blood clots in her lungs. Now, Green grew up in the College Hill neighborhood of St. Louis in government housing that was less than a mile from Procter & Gamble's factory along the North St. Louis Riverfront and other industrial facilities that burn metals or chemicals producing pollutants in the air. The trees were few and far between there, and the apartments in which she lived were plagued with black mold, and the schools she attended had lead paint peeling from the walls. This is all from an article on the Religion News Service, and in that article, it cites a 2019 report on environmental racism in the city. This is a report published by Washington University School of Law. According to this report, black children in the city of St. Louis are 2.4 times more likely than white children to test positive for lead in their blood. They also account for more than 70% of children suffering from lead poisoning, and They make about 10 times more emergency room visits for asthma each year than white children. Majority black neighborhoods are also more likely to be near highways and to see more building demolitions, which creates dust that may contain asbestos and lead. Another article on the Religion News Service site by Bridget Moy, the General Secretary of the Friends Committee on National Legislation, cites an EPA agency study released in 2018, and it found that people of color are far more likely to live near pollution sources. The study found that people under the poverty line, so there's a class element here too, are exposed to higher levels of particulate matter, which is a known carcinogen, than people living above the poverty line. The authors concluded that, quote, Results at national, state, and county scales all indicate that non-whites tend to be burdened disproportionately to whites when it comes to pollution in the environment. 
And so racism and discrimination, according to this article, touch every facet of our world, and the environment is no different. It is wrong for the consequences of pollution, waste disposal, and the disruptive effects of climate change to fall disproportionately on the poor, communities of color, and other marginalized peoples. That's according, again, to Bridget Moy. Now, in light of all this data we have about climate change, about pollution in the environment, there are more and more companies that are dedicated to fighting these ills of society and the ways that we are really destroying our planet in terms of making it healthy for all life in general, and particularly human life. But what happens when those very organizations committed to environmental justice don't have workplace diversity? They're struggling with it. Maybe they've started, maybe they've made gestures, especially after 2020 and the racial justice uprisings, but they're not quite there yet. The numbers aren't there. There's not a whole lot of racial and ethnic diversity in these organizations. Maybe they aren't as up to date on the information around how environmental change affects different racial groups differently and different socioeconomic groups differently. So now you're faced with a double problem. How do you fight environmental racism while simultaneously working for racial and ethnic diversity in the workplaces dedicated to environmental justice? Let's talk a little bit about workplace diversity. There's a study by Pew Research on workplace diversity released in 2023, and it said a majority of U.S. adults, 56%, said that focusing on increasing DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, at work is a good thing. But opinions about DEI vary considerably along demographic and political lines. This should be no surprise as we look at the changing social and political landscape. Many DEI efforts in colleges and universities and governmental institutions have come under fire for supposedly teaching critical race theory or being, quote, woke. And so the little efforts that many workplaces have conducted along the lines of DEI are currently embattled. This same Pew Workplace Diversity Report says that more than half of workers, 54%, say their company or organization pays about the right amount of attention to increasing DEI. And then it breaks it down according to different demographics. So women are more likely than men to value DEI at work. By the numbers, about 6 in 10 women say focusing on increasing DEI at work is a good thing compared to about 5 in 10 men. And there are wide partisan differences in views of workplace DEI. So most Democratic and Democratic-leaning workers, 78%, say that focusing on DEI at work is a good thing. And that's compared with just 30% of Republicans and Republican-leaners. So the political affiliations in your workplace are going to dramatically affect views of any diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives going on there. There are also racial divides. So about two-thirds or more of black employees, 78%, Asian, 72%, and Hispanic, 65% of workers say that focusing on DEI at work is a good thing. But among white workers, fewer than half, 47%, say it's a good thing. And 21% actually say it's a bad thing. So that really complicates the landscape. 
when you are trying to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is an umbrella term for all kinds of initiatives focused on helping the workplace include all different kinds of people, there are vast differences in perceptions along racial lines, gender lines, and political lines. There is a report by the Harvard Business Review that talks about how difficult it is for black women in particular to feel included at work. And our guest today, Abigail, is a black woman in the workplace. And so this is especially pertinent to her and others like her. This article says that feelings of inclusion, connection, and trust with colleagues and managers are harder to come by for black women due to the historical and socio-cultural context of the U.S. workplace and more broadly, our country. In other words, people don't leave their prejudices behind once they clock in at 9 a.m. for their job. No, whatever the culture is promoting, whatever they've grown up with, whatever their families have taught them about gender, about race, all of that comes into the workplace with them, and it makes the workplace much, much harder for black women who live at the intersection of both racism and sexism. This article goes on to cite a 2022 report from an organization called Black Women Thriving, and it highlights that a whopping 66% of black women report not feeling emotionally safe at work, which means they don't open up, they don't venture new ideas, they are concerned about how they are being perceived when they try something new or when they branch out and innovate and they have a chance at failing and what that might mean for their professional life. But this article also suggests some practical ways to address this issue of DEI and particularly the emotional unsafeness, if that's a word, that black women feel in the workplace. First of all, clear systems of accountability help create the foundations for psychological safety. In other words, there have to be clear protocols for handling any issues that may arise. In the absence of a clear grievance process, many racial and ethnic minorities, especially black women, will bottle it up, will keep it inside, will remain silent because A, they don't know how to go about voicing their concerns and B, they're not at all sure that those concerns will actually be heard. The article also suggests creating a new set of supervisor standards that account for the necessary skills such as cultural humility and a practice of shared and equitable decision-making when it comes to leading diverse teams. In other words, the way we evaluate workplace leaders and managers has to include the competencies to have shared decision-making, collaborative decision-making, also the willingness to be humble, admit what you don't know culturally, not just about the specific technical skills of the job, and listen to the voices of racial and ethnic minorities, especially black women. Another suggestion is leveling up things like coaching and 360 feedback and performance management practices to surface potential biases. You have to look for these things in the workplace. You have to include them in the periodic embedded evaluations that all employees should undergo. And at an individual level, the authors suggest leveraging your privilege by amplifying the contributions of black women. The reality is that their labor 
which is immense and skilled, often goes unacknowledged and unheralded. But if you're in a position to bring up the contributions of team members, make especially sure to highlight the contributions of people who tend to be overlooked. So in this episode of the Fighting Racism series, we're going to talk with a person who knows all too well the challenges that lie ahead, as well as what it takes to make progress in this area of both workplace diversity and environmental racism. After the break, we'll be joined by Abigail Oduo to talk about her work in fighting racism through the Earth Justice Public Interest Law Firm, which has more than 500 employees, and her role as a senior development official. This is an informative interview that's going to challenge you and inspire you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This podcast is made possible in part by Zonervan Reflective, the publishers of The Color of Compromise, How to Fight Racism, and How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition by Dr. Jamar Tisby. Zonervan Reflective focuses on faith and culture books that prepare readers to engage the public square with vision and verve challenge the status quo, ask tough questions, and reflect the thought-provoking answers that call us to action. Zondervan Reflective is a division of HarperCollins Publishing. Visit zondervan.com slash zondervan reflective for all your book purchases. That's zondervan.com slash zondervan reflective for all your book purchases. Oh, I'm so glad we got this working. Y'all don't know what we have been through, but that's how good the content is. The enemy always tries to mess it up when when something good is coming. So uh, this is Footnotes. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, and this is the Fighting Racism podcast series. You asked, we answered. You wanted to hear from regular, everyday folks doing incredible things for racial justice, and hopefully you get inspired too. So with me today is... Abigail O'Doul, welcome to Footnotes in the Fighting Racism podcast series. Thank you so much for having me, Jamar. Well, I was blown away when you told me where you were calling in from. You know, in this age of like on-screen video calls or podcasts, you never quite know. So I asked you, and your answer surprised me a little bit. So will you tell folks where you are calling in from? (laughs) Yeah, I'm calling from Nairobi, Kenya in East Africa. The motherland. Wakanda, you're coming in. This is awesome. How did you get to Nairobi, Kenya? I've never been. I've never been. And I'm wondering, did you grow up there? Did you move there? What got you to Nairobi, Kenya? Yeah, so I did a master's degree with Azusa Pacific University, and they said, you can go anywhere in the world. And so I threw out a few options. Those weren't actually viable. And then they said, where you can really go is India, the Philippines, or Kenya. And I was tired of racism, so I decided to go to Kenya. And that was 11 years ago, and I've been bouncing back and forth between L.A. and Kenya since then. Whoa, I love that. And it makes a lot of sense. And you were ahead of the curve getting out of the country as relief from racism. So has it done that? Has it has it been uh, sort of like identity affirming and, and where you can breathe and have space because you're around so many other Black folks? Yeah, and really in the most unusual ways. Um, you know, of course, with Black identity, it's always very complicated, Um, for instance, I grew up with cousins who would say, oh, you're not black, you talk white, 
you're interested in academics, like all this like kind of weird brainwashing that um, they had experienced that they were trying to hoist on me. And so, of course, there's aspects of my identity like that that I had to sort through, as well as once I came to Kenya, a lot of different aspects of my identity to sort through like, oh, well, you're not a Black American because you don't have hair like Beyonce or you're not light skinned like Chris Brown. So you can't possibly be Black American. So it, it created a really great opportunity to work on myself and to really understand who do I believe myself to be rather than who do other people tell me that I am. Mm, that's amazing. Um, I'm going to have to find a way to do a footnotes meetup, <laughs> pop-up <laughs> podcast in Nairobi. Uh, I've got to <laughs> see it and experience it. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. When we put out the call for this Fighting Racism series, you responded and you talked about your work with Earth Justice, which you describe as a public interest law firm of more than 500 employees. Can you tell us about your professional role at Earth Justice and what kind of work uh, the organization does? Yeah, so my role at Earth Justice is as a senior development officer in Planned Gifts. And so what that means is that I talk to people um, and encourage them to give money to Earth Justice to support the work and to, for them to do that using creative means like their will or beneficiary designation or even donating cool stuff like wine collections or comic book collections. And all of this stuff helps move forward the work of Earth Justice because we represent many different clients, um, some of who are tribes or community groups, and we represent them for free. And we're able to do that because of the fundraising that folks like myself are doing. Wow. So you all about the money, y'all. I'm sorry, I'm being cheesy. But yes, <laughs> that is a vitally, vitally important role, um, senior development officer and Earth Justice. What kind of work does this law firm get involved in? What kind of cases? Many of which you've probably heard of and many of which you probably haven't. So Standing Rock Sioux with the Dakota Access Pipeline, Earth Justice is representing the Dakota Sioux tribe. Um, also, there's a whole bunch of folks in an area of Louisiana known as Cancer Alley. One of those groups is called Rise St. James, and they have been working tirelessly to end the petrochemical buildup that's happening in their neighborhood. Um, so all these plastic plants, um, all of these other chemical plants keep getting built huh, in the black neighborhood. Imagine that. So Earth Justice is representing them in court um, against the state of Louisiana, as well as against various petrochemical companies who refuse to restrict their amount of emissions that are giving these folks cancer and asthma. Whoa. Vitally important work. And you bring up some really interesting and important uh, context around race when it comes to earth justice and climate justice and things of that nature. We're going to get into that. What I found so interesting about your story is there's both external and internal aspects where you're working for racial justice. So externally on the actual cases like that you've mentioned, but you've done a bunch of work internally too. So we'll, we'll get to both, but let's start with the internal. I found it really interesting. You wrote something um, that in, in the application and you said, I took on the additional work of networking across the organization. So we're talking about how you got hired to do development, but then you took on the additional work of networking across the organization. And I wonder if you would talk about the added labor for Black people in the workplace 
in terms of diversity and race relations. There's your job on paper, and then there's the job you got to do just to survive or to make the workplace um, more welcoming for Black people and other people of color. Can you talk about that? So I was in this blissfully unaware stage and everything just came crashing down during that conversation. And I realized that even if my experience was rosy, that I couldn't enjoy myself knowing that other Black folks in the organization were having a totally different experience. So that was kind of the beginning of it. And after she did that for me, as each Black staff member came on board, I then invited them out to lunch. Oh, okay. And other Black staff members that were already on board, I also invited them out to lunch and asked them what were their stories? What were their experiences? What had they seen here? What had they seen in other places? And I made sure that you know, just because my supervisor or other folks on my onboarding team hadn't shared really important contextual information with me, I was going to make sure that wasn't going to happen to other folks. And that's how it all started. That is really significant. Um, just so I can get the picture, are you based in Nairobi at this time too? So this is like an international organization? No. I'm So at that time, I was based in San Francisco. Okay. We're not an international organization. I'm actually on leave right now. Okay. Good for Shout you. out general counsel. <laughs> and uh, yeah, at that time, at the beginning of the story, I was in San Francisco. And then in the middle of the story, at the pandemic, is when I relocated to the Los Angeles area. Okay. And how significant was it that this person just took you under their wing? I, I don't imagine they had any sort of directives from their bosses. They just thought it was important that you should get a lay of the land, racially speaking. Is that right? Yeah, it was. And you know, she shared from her experience a very deep points of pain and frustration, but also a lot of hope. She said, for a long time, I was one of two Black people at this organization. And now there's a couple more of us. And that just, for her, that just gave her hope. And it just reminds me so much as I'm engaging in this work that hope's a discipline, right? And hope is something that we cultivate. And we have, you know, all these people who came before us who had much less to hope for and hope in. And we get to be a part of their legacy. And part of their legacy is also hope. What I find really interesting as well is when this person sat you down, I mean, you could have received that information differently. You could have been like, okay, I'm going to shut my mouth and keep my head down. Or, okay, I need to find an exit strategy as soon as possible. But instead, you said, let me replicate what they did for me. So let me go ahead and sit down with other Black employees and, and let them know let me also gain from the wisdom of, of other employees who have been here a while. And then you took it even further. So you started some initiatives. Can you tell us about, <laughs> you, you, you said the initials were BAE. So do you just call it Bay? We do. We do call it Bay. Yeah. So that's Black at Earth Justice. Yeah. So Bay is one of my loves. Obviously, it's Bay. Bay is Bay. <laughs> The story behind it is, of course, really tragic, like a lot of these stories often are. There was a staff member who was the only uh, Black person in their office, and they said, I need to talk to somebody about what's going on. So 
a whole bunch of us convened in a conference room. I want to say it was maybe 20 of us in person and maybe 10 to 15 more people on screen. And this person just poured out their heart and shared what had been happening in their office. And essentially, it was that microaggressions turned into macroaggressions turned into bullying. And this person was like, I can't do this anymore. I don't think I can work here anymore. And we just kind of all looked at each other and we were like, what if what we were doing right now, like what if we did that regularly? And what if we made sure that no one felt alone? And and similar to what that first person had done for me, we thought, what if we take it a step further and try to prevent this sort of thing from happening, prevent Black folks from being siloed in an office where they're the only, and make sure that they have many points of connection into this community. What if we build a community together? And so that was the beginning of Black at Earth Justice. It didn't, it didn't just stop at like something social. Specifically, her story Uh, multiple people at various levels in the hierarchy raised their hand. And so I helped gather folks to develop what then became a bullying and microaggressions policy at Earth Justice. Wow. Right? Because it's like, how do we stop this from happening again? We also created a one, I created a one-to-one employee program. I called it KIN. And it was focused on helping people who were the only one in their office connect with other Black folks from across the organization, regardless of what position they were in or what point in the hierarchy they were at, just so that people could connect and be able to share their stories and share what they were experiencing with other folks. I moved on from there, just connecting, creating, and really trying to seek the flourishing in that space. Whoa. What was it about that moment in that meeting? I mean, first of all, it seems pretty remarkable to me that someone would reach out. I mean, usually people just bounce like they've had it up to here. I'm putting in my two weeks. I'll see y'all. This person took the step of reaching, must have sent a general email to like the black folks or something. And then y'all surrounded this person. What was it about that moment that said, we've got to, Whatever is happening here right now, we've got to make sure that happens and that system of support is available. What what was happening in that moment that you was like, mm, let's let's keep this going? Well, you know, a part of it was just the gathering, right? Like just the power in looking around a conference room and having all black faces and then looking on the screen and having all black faces when you're a clear minority in an organization. Just that alone was very powerful. And then just the kinship that that happens in a space when Black people gather and they've decided that they can trust each other. It was, it was just, it was a moment. Like many people were crying during her story. I wish I was a crier, but I was feeling it deep in my heart. We were just looking around the room like this, this is a moment. Like we are currently in a moment and we have to make more of these. And how do we do that? And because there was already now this momentum with me taking out every single black staff member to lunch, I had my Friday started being filled up where it's like, I'm having a 15 minute meeting with this black staff member. And then I'm having another 15 minute meeting with this other black staff member. Staff in uh, DC were doing the same thing where they had one office where they would meet in periodically and they would just all come and gather. And so we were able to then pull that together into what became Bay. Whoa. I love that. Um, 
so as people are listening, I just want you to sort of, I want them to be thinking about how they can apply this in their workplace. So, so what's happening here is you have a group that is a numerical minority within the organization coming together in this case, in a moment of crisis with someone and, and, and wrapping arms of support around them. The ground had already been uh, prepared with you with these one-on-one meetings because you're building trust, you're opening up dialogue. So then when the time came that everybody needed to come together, it wasn't something completely out of the blue. Now, let me ask you, um, as your coworkers heard about this, which they undoubtedly do, whether you told them or not, <laughs> but um, was there any pushback against this all-Black meeting, this racial, this ethnic-specific group, these complaints about, well, you're self-segregating, you're divisive, anything like that go on? Yes. Yes, it did. One office that will not be named was definitely having some accusations of Black staff just, oh, they're just being lazy. They're just kicking in an office. I don't think they're doing work. That sort of thing definitely surfaced as well as, you know, personally, I had some challenges explaining to my supervisors why Bay was suddenly taking up so much space on my calendar and so many meetings that were not having to do with my direct duties. And what I shared with my supervisor was that, one, we have goals. And if I'm meeting my goals or exceeding them, in my case, then there's nothing to worry about. And then the second part that I shared was that this work, I'm doing this to retain myself. If I don't build this, And if I don't help this flourish, then I will not be able to stay because this will not be a friendly place for me. So I am doing the work of making Earth Justice a friendly place for me and people like me. And that's why I need to allocate my time to this. That is a flex. That is a flex and a half. You didn't just try to walk them along and get them to... You said, um, listen, I'm exceeding my goals. So professionally, you ain't got to let it stand on going over. And then you said, (laughs) if you want me to stay and folk like me to stay, we got to do this work. That is a flex and a half. I applaud you. That was okay. I just took some notes on that one. Wow. (laughs) And and I know that not everybody could do that in their workplace. Um, But, you know, something that that I, as well as other folks raised multiple times was one, we have a lot of partners and clients that are black. And so isn't it important to support the black people internally as you're engaging them externally also, lest it seem like hypocrisy? Of course, that's not what you, I'm, I'm sure you are not. Surely not. But, <laughs> but it, but it could appear that way wow. to an untrained eye. And let's, let's pro. not, uh, Let's avoid the appearance of evil. (laughs) Whoa, this is good. Okay. I want to ask you one more question on the internal aspect uh, portion. Well, maybe two. Um, You said you came came up with some demands. Like you you had spoken to all these Black folks. You had been able to sort of um, see some patterns. Can you identify just a couple of the sort of demands or the asks that you had in terms of making the workplace more friendly, more open? to, to Black folks? This list of demands was a combination of things. Some of the things were really new, uh, 
And others were pieces of feedback that we had given the organization over the past five years. And they had gone up where satellites live. I don't know what happened to them. But we had given feedback because we were asked to give feedback as Black staff members. And then just nothing really seemed to come out of it. We didn't get a no. We didn't get a yes. We didn't get a maybe or in progress. So we took all of those things. And then we looked at this list and said, based on our current circumstances, what is missing? Things like clear promotional pathways. Disproportionately, Black staff made up the lower 30% hierarchically within the organization. And there didn't seem to really be very many promotional pathways up. And so it's like, okay, great. We're hiring Black people, but we're hiring them in the administrative positions that seem to be dead ends because there are no job families. And so that's one of the things we requested. And we said, by helping Black folks in this way, it's going to help everyone. That's amazing. I always think that when we're talking about change, it is vitally important that we get crystal clear on the changes we're asking for, like enumerate them. And you can go back through history. There are all these manifestos, all these lists of demands, you know, any any kind of big social movement that you're looking at, they had specific objectives, even if they were rather broad, right? But they had things that they were working towards. So I think that's so crucial for anybody listening that as you're looking at your workplace, whether it's a nonprofit or for-profit, whatever, if you want to say change, well, what does change actually mean? Can you articulate that? Because if you're not clear on the goal, then it's very unfair and it's going to be ineffective to ask supervisors and managers to make changes because they don't, they're not clear on what changes to make, and you're not clear because you haven't told them. So I thought I thought that was a really important point to make. Um, one other question around here. You said you had training in grassroots community organizing, and that kind of helped you with this. Why is it important that, that these efforts around racial justice, inclusion, attentiveness, and sensitivity to diversity, why is it important that it's a, it's a grassroots movement and not just managers or top-down? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I would say that managers and strong leadership is really important, but they aren't always the most effective drivers of change. Sometimes they're not even the most efficient drivers of change because of bureaucracy, other kinds of politics that exist. And so from my perspective, getting broad buy-in from employees who are the ones doing the work and then saying, okay, which of these initiatives have we outlined that you can begin doing right now within your existing workflow without having to ask anybody first? Right. And so then we started looking at that. What kinds of things are those? Can we do to kind of change the culture as well as change the conversation? I mean, one of the things I shared when someone asked me at work, do you feel like this worked? You know, do the, the CEO and the senior VPs, do you feel like they've adopted these things? And I was like, maybe, maybe not. But the thing I find interesting is that this work is now what everybody in the organization is talking about. We only had 65 out of 500 people within the organization participating in this volunteer effort focused around Black staff. 
And now it's changed the entire conversation within our organization. Our organization is now having all kinds of initiatives. The way we're looking at work, the way we're talking about work is different. It's everything has changed. And I think that that's, that's the best case scenario is to simply change the conversation. And we have such a broad base of buy-in that things that seemed radical before are just normal, just normal ideas that someone can propose in a meeting now. Like, before I, we proposed that Juneteenth be an organizational holiday in 2020, everyone was like, there's no precedent for that. I don't know. And I was like, I think this is our moment, you all. Like, I think this is, this is, they're feeling really guilty <laughs> right now about George Floyd. And there's emails going out to staff every single week saying like, I'm so sorry because someone else died. You know, like, I think this is the time to ask for what we want in a clear, defined way. And to get other employees bought in so that it's like, hey, we all agree on this. Can you, being in a managerial position, memorialize this now and just write it down? Because we all agree, we all of us at the bottom, we all agree. Mm. What you're saying is so significant. It is an illustration of the tipping point principle. I always tell folks, as you look at the Black freedom struggle historically, it's never a majority of people who are involved. Um, in, in, in your workplace, it's like 10, 13% or something out of 500. And mm-hmm. yet that was enough to shift the conversation. So you don't need the majority to, to cause a, a massive change. You just need a small group of committed folks. And you've just demonstrated that. Let me shift topics here, being reflective. So we're going to talk about the external in a moment and and, and justice as it it pertains to the creation. But as you look at this work with Bay, for you, was there some sort of spiritual or religious motivation or understanding that guides you in this work? And can you talk some about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I definitely believe in the doctrine of the Mago Dei, that every person is made in the image of God. Um, and I love getting to promote the flourishing of traditionally marginalized groups, groups that are marginalized within workplaces, uh, specifically Black folks. Um, I am all about Black folks being able to just not just exist and be, but in a really beautiful way that just shows off who God is and how amazing God is. And I've found it to be really exciting in this particular workplace because it's a non-Christian space. And I think I've had more opportunities to just have deep conversations about what I do and why I do it and you know who God is to me and who Jesus is to me and how that reflects in my work for Bay that I've never had in when I was at a Christian college or when I was in a Christian workplace, I was like, I never talked about Jesus this much. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and so it's, it's really cool and exciting um, to just get to share with others the hope that I have. Um, and I've even had the opportunity on staff calls. There's a staff call I particularly recall where everyone was down in the dumps because of things that happen um, within the American context that can be very challenging, such as presidencies and Supreme Court justices, just to name a few. And I, 
I said, you know, hey, speaking as I just want to out myself as a Black Christian, and the tradition that I come from is one where people aren't hopeless, like because we have a, a hope and there's there's a path towards a future that includes all of us. And that is a beautiful future that we can imagine together. And we don't have to give up just because there's one hurdle. I was like, my ancestors were enslaved and they still sang songs. Like, how, how, can, how can someone who, who couldn't imagine possibly a future outside of slavery do something as simple as sing, right? And it's because hope is something deeper than whatever your external circumstances are. Right. And I was like, and for me, my hope is in Jesus. So I'm not like, yes, these things are not great. And these things are worrisome. And I think we can do something about them. Um, And like, for those of you who are feeling hopeless, like, look around of what we've done within the organization. I was like, and a part of why I do this work in this organization is because I see a hopeful future for us. And I think this is something that we can also all see for ourselves. But it, it, it also takes some looking inward and in my case, looking outward, looking up. That's an incredible testimony. I resonate with it. When I was in grad school at a secular public university, I had incredible opportunities to talk about my faith and what I believed um, because you're in an environment where that's just not assumed. Um, and I also appreciate your approach. Like you're just speaking authentically for yourself. And I think even in a public secular workplace, that's okay. Like we get so anxious about talking about our faith, about our religious beliefs, right? Because we don't want it to come across as proselytizing or browbeating or thumping the Bible, whatever it is. But all you did was share your testimony. And who can argue with that? Who can argue with, for Abigail, like this is important to her. This is how she sees it. By the way, we respect what she's done in these areas. And oh, there's a reason for it. There's a source for it, the image of God. Oh, the hope that we have. Oh, so I just say that as, I, I mean, I hope it's an encouragement to folks. Just be yourself. Like you're not doing anything wrong by sharing your story. Um, certainly be wise. There are contexts, right? But the way you just did it now was really important, I thought. Let's shift gears and talk. How do I talk about this, right? Give me the language. Okay, so it's your organization's called Earth Justice, is it climate justice? Is it earth care, creation care? I don't know what language that you use um, or that we should use in this conversation. Give me some vocabulary. <laughs> yes. So um, so Earth Justice is a law firm, for starters. Uh, we do public interest law, and we don't represent ourselves, right? We only represent others. And so law is kind of the lane that Earth Justice lives in, and we represent environmental justice organizations, but we are not an environmental justice organization because environmental justice orgs have lots of blood, sweat, tears, all kinds of those sorts of equity um, in, in their work that earth justice simply doesn't have. Got it. Got it. But environmental justice, that's, that's kind of the term that has currency in your world right now. That's helpful. Can you give me, while we're sort of on this sort of spiritual topic, from your viewpoint as a Christian, why people of faith should be concerned or distinctly or particularly concerned about environmental justice? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would, for me, it starts back in the book of Genesis, right? Like Adam's first job is taking care of animals and a garden. 
right? A pretty extensive one before he even meets another person. That's the job he's given, um, which I would consider creation care. So I have a, what's an unpopular in my uh, Christian circle view of the Noah story, which is God told Noah to put all the animals on a boat and save them while he didn't save a whole bunch of people. And so maybe it's a part of our responsibility as as Christians to also be caring for animals and the environment. Uh, and wow. you know, every, everyone yeah, doesn't I'm agree sure with me on that. Super popular but, in Bible study. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really think that it's it's crucial from from multiple standpoints. Um, just taking care of what God has given us. Yeah, and I ask because there's often, you know, folks, some folks are going to find a way to push back on anything justice related. And I hear from some corners like, well, Jesus is coming back and to make new heavens and new earth anyway, we shouldn't care. Or, you know, we are the crown of God's creation. We have, um, you know, complete uh, dominion over all of created things so we can do with it whatever we want. Have you heard any of those objections and how kind of do you oh, respond yes. to that? <laughs> oh, so, so for the, you know, well, God's coming back and he's making a new heaven and new earth. The way I think about that is, you know, remember that parable that Jesus told of, you know, to one servant, he gave one and then to another, he gave a hundred and to another, he gave more. And the person who did nothing with it was then scolded and said, oh, well, I knew you were coming back and that you would just be such a hard master, so I hit it. It's like, isn't that kind of what we're doing if we don't take care of something that God has given us clear stewardship over? Aren't we hiding it away until he comes back rather than working on multiplying it so that he can say, well done, my good and faithful servant? The parable of the talents applied to environmental justice. That's a new application. That's powerful. That's powerful. I like it. <laughs> maybe that maybe that helped you back in, in, in the Bible study. <laughs> I don't know. I've just messed with it. Um, <laughs> it, it. It usually makes people just scowl at me because then they're like, what do I say to that? <laughs> right. Oh, sounds like too much sense to me. So in your uh, narrative about the work that you do, you also said something very interesting on the racial aspect. You said our sector has a race problem. Our sector, I'm assuming you mean environmental justice, maybe specifically law, has a race problem. Explain what you meant by that. Yeah, so law has a race problem. I think it's two or three, maybe 2% of practicing attorneys are Black women. And then environmental organizations also have a race problem. So there's a, I would say maybe a watchdog organization called Green 2.0 that's been tracking it for many years. And what they found is over and over again, environmental organizations, so of which Earth Justice is one, but others include names like Sierra Club, Greenpeace, Audubon, organizations like that have really struggled with hiring, retaining, and promoting non-white staff members to the point where there's even articles about, you know, what does racism look like when it's under the helm of white women? Because many of the folks that are within our sphere are white women. And so they say, oh, well, you know, I'm a woman. So, and I've been promoted to be a, you know, senior VP, et cetera. 
Therefore, we don't have any issues here, but the issues tend to be surrounding race. Wow. So, okay. Yeah. So issues of feminism's lack of diversity, as well as environmental justice and law. Um, How did we get there? Because as you indicated earlier, so often environmental injustice disproportionately affects communities of color. So you would think that we would be more involved rather than underrepresented. How, how does this race problem, in your view, get here? I would say that we are very involved. It's just a question of, is it at the largest 10 environmental organizations? Probably not, but is it at on on the local level at small environmental justice organizations? Definitely, yes. Right. So people are standing up. They're fighting for themselves. They're fighting for their futures, for their air, their water, their food. And against that landscape, you have other organizations historically, such as many of the big greens, that have mostly focused on themselves and their own interests rather than all of these communities that are being targeted by companies, by the government, you know, by other corporate interests. And so it's it's definitely been a learning curve. So one example is that previously folks might talk about um okay, we shouldn't drill here because of the specific animal that lives there or because we'd like for the land to be pristine. And that comes from kind of a conservationist background. Um, And conservation always draws the question, conserving what for who? And traditionally, the answer to that question is conserving pristine land for white folks to enjoy. And that's just the truth. So... Looking at it from a different lens means saying, okay, yes, you know, this particular land may be pristine land, but why are we interested in conserving it? Does it actually belong to someone else? For instance, does it actually belong to a tribe? Is this actually an area of religious or historical significance to a tribe? And therefore, it would be unethical for us to drill there right? Because then now we are further digging in to these ideas of who has what rights and tribes that don't have rights, right? And we're kind of further digging into that pathway that the United States has historically been on that many organizations now like Earth Justice are trying to get the United States to turn a corner and turn a different direction Mm -hmm. with that. That is fascinating in terms of everything you said, but especially the part around what does conservation mean? Conserving what and for whom? I try to make a similar point, much less eloquently than you just did in uh, How to Fight Racism, where we're talking about you know political conservatism. And when it comes to race, what do we want to conserve historically, (laughs) that has been true. Um, Don't we, by necessity, want to progress beyond where we've been? And so not be conservative, at least in this area. And then I just love how you put a finer point on it, conserve what and for whom. I think that those are questions that we can all ask of our organizations, of our institutions. Um, For folks like me, who 
I love the outdoors. I grew up playing outside. I worked for the Youth Conservation Corps when I was in high school and college. Um, I've been around nature. One of my favorite uh, self-care activities is hikes outside in nature. I love it, but I wouldn't call myself an activist or even necessarily an advocate. Is there a one next step for regular folks like me who want to help with environmental justice? Yeah, I would say look for your local environmental justice organization. Uh, There's so many of them that are organized around race, that are organized around religion. Uh, You know, there's there's one that's uh, that was a bunch of uh, folks who were second generation Chinese immigrants who were fighting against a refinery in their area. Like it it looks all kinds of ways and it's really beautiful. Um, And so there's all different kinds of ways to find those orgs. You can just type into Google environmental justice organizations and then type in your state. Um, Earth Justice represents a fair number of environmental justice organizations, not all of them. There are so many out there who are doing so much good work. But on our website, there's a clients page, and that's a good spot where you can kind of peruse and look for your state and see if you can click the links and find an environmental justice organization that's based near you that you can whether get involved or just talk to someone at or peruse their website and see what the best next step based on your circumstances might be. Maybe you have time and maybe you'll volunteer with them. Maybe you have a little extra cash and you'll donate to them. Or maybe you'll just meet up and encourage them and let them know that you're fighting too. I can easily see why you are exceeding your goals (laughs) at your job. Um, This has been so helpful and so enlightening. As we close, are there things about this racial justice work, whether internally in the workplace or externally as you look at environmental justice, are there, are there things that you wish you knew before you got started and maybe that you would tell your younger self uh, lessons that we can take with us as we try to engage in this work as well? One thing is look for friends everywhere, right? So maybe you're trying to help specifically Black staff members, but there might be a non-Black staff member that might be incredibly helpful to your goals and just just for friendship. Um, and so there's been folks like that that I've come across where I was like, wow, I am so happy that I let you in. Like, even though my focus was... Black folks at Earth Justice. How do we get into the best position possible for ourselves? Um, But there's been some folks that I've really come to lean on in a wonderful way and who have lifted up their voices when I've said, I'm tired. I'm not saying anything else in the staff meeting. I need you to say something for me. And they've done that. I had, there's folks who um, really put on their empathy hats when I shared with them what our list of demands were. And regardless of hierarchy, they jumped two feet into this work. There's one person I'm thinking of in particular, um, a white staff member. She ended up spending, I want to say 20 hours a week on this stuff. Uh, And she said, what do you need my help with? And I said, I need your help administratively because that is where it falls apart for me. So, and she said, yes, I will do that. And that's what she did. Um, so that's so that's one thing. Um, just casting a broad network, allowing yourself to really engage and get to know people 
And that also helps you get to know what motivates people and what they resonate with. And through that, it just makes the work even more fun because now you're doing it with the community. You have people in your tight-knit community, and then you have people in your wider community. Mm. Abigail O'Doul, out here doing it. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom and your insights with us. Thank you for the passion that you have for this work, for the way that you do it as an outgrowth of your faith and a service to your coworkers and to um, the environment as well. Uh, we really appreciate your your insights and the ways that you've shared with us. Um, are there good ways to to follow you or support your work? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram. You can follow me there. Um, you might not find tons of helpful content there, though. LinkedIn is where it's at for me. I speak at a few fundraising conferences each year. So I speak at the National Council of Planned Gifts. And this year, I'll also hopefully be speaking at a research and policy conference for fundraising, all on these kinds of topics of how do we, how do we make fundraising more equitable, more inclusive, more diverse? Um, how do we you know, get more folks like myself in here? doing the good work. Well, I hope this is the first of many conversations that we have. I hope we can figure out a podcast pop-up event in Nairobi. (laughs) Until then, hold it down for me. Thank you so much for joining Footnotes and the Fighting Racism series. Thank you so much, Jamar. Fighting racism requires action. Today, we've heard what one person is doing to help fight environmental racism and promote diversity in the workplace. Her story invites the question, what will you do to fight racism today? Think on it. More importantly, act on it. Let me leave you with this. We are the recipients of the movement that has come before us, a movement that we're still part of, and it's expanding. It includes things like environmental racism. But in order to effectively combat environmental racism, we have to make the organizations dedicated to environmental justice places that are inclusive for all kinds of people across the racial and ethnic spectrum. We now have the tools to fight for a more just and equitable world. So let's be faithful stewards of the earth and of the hard-earned progress secured by those who came before us. We'll be back next time. Fighting Racism is a mini-series powered by Footnotes with Jamar Tisby and is made in collaboration with the Religion News Service. Our producer for the show is Bo York, with special thanks to Catherine Post, Paul O'Donnell, Roxanne Stone, and Adele Banks. Our guest this week was Abigail Oduo. You can learn more about her work and how you can support her in the show notes for this episode. I've been your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, and we'll see you next time on Fighting Racism. Thank you.